The History Channel original podcast. When you think about the Civil War, look at what the Northerners are fighting for. The nation is new. They have come here because they've seen what it's like in the old world. And that idea that all men are created equal, if it doesn't exist here, it doesn't exist anywhere. And therefore, they're willing to fight. And soldiers were waiting to see what direction is he going to take. If he turns to the left, we're going to be retreating back across the river. If he turns right, that means we're heading south. Grant understood the destruction of Lee's army meant the destruction of the Confederacy. From the History Channel, this is Making Grant. I'm Andre DeShields. This season, the divisive commander of the Union Army and the 18th President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. It's May 1864. The Battle of the Wilderness has resulted in a harrowing draw. It leaves over 28,000 soldiers from both sides wounded, killed, or captured. Many are burned alive by the wildfires sparked from gunfire and dry timber. Bodies cover the forest floor, which is already littered with bones left from the previous battles the Union and Confederate armies have fought over this same territory. The two sides reach a stalemate. In previous battles against Lee, Union commanders had retreated immediately. Grant can see that though his troops are battered, they still have the will to fight. In his memoir, he writes, The armies were now all ready to move for the accomplishment of a single object. They were acting as a unit so far as such as the thing was possible over such a vast field. Lee, with the capital of the Confederacy, was the main end. Gambling that a weakened General Lee won't pursue him, Grant goes on the offensive. He orders his troops to flank Lee's army to the east and head toward the center of Robert E. Lee's stronghold, Richmond. Here's historian Barton A. Myers. When Grant marches off in 1864, it's going to set off a titanic struggle for the end of the war. Grant is going to keep their focus lasered on to Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia because Grant understood the destruction of Lee's army meant the destruction of the Confederacy. At the beginning of the campaign, Grant mentions to a correspondent who's headed off to Washington, D.C., he says to him, if you get through the lines and you make it and you see President Lincoln, tell him from me that whatever happens, there will be no turning back. Lee's armies parallel Grant's to the west, skirmishing as they head south through weeks of rain and mud. The two armies come face to face near the town of Spotsylvania, Virginia. Grant writes, The battles of the wilderness and Spotsylvania, bloody and terrible though they were on our side, were even more damaging to our enemy and so crippled him. Professor Brian Matthew Jordan says the toll on both sides is quite terrible. In some of the most savage fighting of the war, you see five and a half weeks of constant movement, constant entrenching, constant fighting that ultimately will produce 55,000 Union casualties, 35,000 Confederate casualties. By the time Grant reaches the crucial crossroads of Cold Harbor, 
these soldiers understand keenly what's ahead, and it's more loss, it's more rivers of blood. The Cold Harbor District is just 10 miles from Richmond on a major supply route. When the Union must postpone the attack by one day to wait for reinforcements, Lee's army takes advantage of the time to entrench its position. Colonel Doug Dowd says Grant's army knows they are not in good shape to win this battle. If you're a soldier, you think our chances aren't good. And this is when we have heartbreaking stories of men writing on sheets of paper, today was the day I was killed at Cold Harbor, and pinning that to the inside of their uniforms. But Grant, as usual, believes he can force his way through any obstacle. Grant still believes that Lee's army is almost broken. All I have to do is push a little bit harder and they will break. They will not break. Lee's forces have become masters at building earthwork fortifications. They have created an immovable wall with strategic crossfire positions. Cold Harbor was a disaster. Robert E. Lee's army had an enormous advantage. And within only five hours' time, Grant's army had sustained thousands of casualties in one morning assault. Historian Brian Matthew Jordan. One Union soldier likened that combat at Cold Harbor to a volcanic blast, that it wasn't war, it was murder. Historian Timothy B. Smith says, Cold Harbor is an example of Grant's unwillingness to back down one that cost the Union dearly. Grant is a very aggressive general, and we see that in several mistakes that he makes throughout the war, including Cold Harbor. Some have said Cold Harbor was the price that the Union had to pay to have Grant as their commander. Grant knows this time he has overreached, and he acknowledges his mistake. He later writes... I have always regretted the last assault of Cold Harbor. No advantage whatever was gained to compensate for the heavy loss we sustained. Christy Coleman, executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, says, At this point, both sides of the nation are weary of what seems to be an unwinnable war. By 1864, people are tired. There is no clear winner and there is no clear end in sight for this conflict. We have over 600,000 people dead, and people are tired of it. The Northern public was craving some good news. Initially, the morale in the North had been buoyed by this new decisiveness of Grant after the wilderness, and they demanded a quick victory. But by the time Grant reaches Cold Harbor, they were impatient as the rivers of blood continued. The Battle of Cold Harbor earns Grant the nickname The Butcher. He wasn't a butcher. Many casualties came out of the Overland campaign, but it was fundamentally necessary in order to win the war. Robert E. Lee lost 50% of his entire army during the exact same duration. But is Lee remembered as a butcher? According to General David Petraeus, the isolation and the public criticism are a tremendous weight for Grant to bear. Being in command of of a large effort, being the commander, is a pretty unique experience. You know, there's no one in whom you can confide as lonely at the top, as they say, and the casualties are going to be tough. And Grant is experiencing the butcher's bill, as they termed it. And it takes a a great deal of, uh, again, just sheer fortitude, uh, sheer determination 
to continue on and not let this grind you down. What Grant accomplishes after Cold Harbor is, I think, one of his most impressive feats of the war. Once again, Grant refuses to accept defeat. He decides to slip east and cross the James River. He'll approach Richmond from the south. It would almost seem that the worse the battles go, the more Grant is inspired to stay on the attack. Colonel Doug Dowds again. Grant decides to flank the Army of Northern Virginia and then cross the even more formidable obstacle of the James River. He's trying to keep the initiative, continue the momentum, drive the energy and force Lee to react to what he's doing. This is one of his great strengths. Now it's Lee's turn to make the error. He doesn't realize Grant's plan. Instead, he thinks the Union is retreating. It's an incredibly dangerous maneuver to move an army of that size across a major body of water, especially whenever you're faced off against an enemy as wily as the Gray Fox, Robert E. Lee. And so he finds a way, secretly, at night, to take an army of 115,000 and disappear. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In a letter to his wife, Julia, Grant writes, Since Sunday, we've been engaged in one of the most perilous movements ever executed by a large army, that of withdrawing from the front of an enemy and moving past his flank, crossing the James River with a bridge we have to improvise. So far, it has been eminently successful, and I hope will prove so to the end. It will be hard and may be tedious, however. Historian Gary Edelman describes this wildly ambitious project. U.S. Grant sets out to construct something that nobody thought could be constructed, an actual pontoon bridge across a 2,000-foot span of the James River. The bridge consists of pontoon boats, rather large boats that have excellent buoyancy, strung together and connected by wooden planks and through these bridges, you could march not only soldiers, but also artillery, supplies, and whatnot. This is the largest pontoon bridge built during the entire war. They built it in seven hours. I mean, think about that. He's going to cross 100,000 men across the James River, including his wagons and artillery. But just think about the engineering feat that that is. That's remarkable. Hours later, Grant's men, with their horses and guns, 
quite literally walk on water to cross the James River. And Robert E. Lee misses this. He misses the movement of Grant's army. Grant's army is now poised to attack the strategic target of Petersburg, Virginia, about 23 miles directly south of Richmond. Petersburg is the logistics hub, the transportation hub. It's connected to all the supplies that can come up from the south. If Lee is gonna maintain his army, let alone Richmond, the city, he needs Petersburg. So Grant understands this. And so by threatening Petersburg, he in fact threatens Richmond. Grant relies on a tactic that has brought him victory in previous sieges. He sends his men out to dig a warrant of tunnels underground. He writes, We learned through deserters that the people believed very wild rumors about what was going on. They said that we had mined the whole of Petersburg and they were resting on a slumbering volcano and did not know at what moment they might expect that eruption. They packed the mine underneath the Confederate trenches with 8,000 pounds of explosives to try to blast a hole into the Confederate earthworks. The fuse starts burning. They pack sandbags so the explosion doesn't come out toward the Union troops. And then the earth just shook. It immediately killed and disintegrated 300 South Carolinians, blowing a massive hole in the Confederate line. And then the Union army gets ready to launch frontal assaults. Where the Confederate line was once firmly entrenched, there is now a great crater. This is where Grant plans to focus his attack. But the strategy is undone by a fatal misstep. Grant's commanders put the worst possible general in charge of the attack. James Ledley is known to be a drunk and a coward. Historian Brian Matthew Jordan. Instead of going around the rim of the crater, as initially planned, James Ledley blunders his division right into the middle of the crater, and it becomes a virtual turkey shoot. And then they send in the United States Colored Troop regiments. Nothing incited the rage of the Confederate soldier like the sight of an African-American soldier wielding a musket in a blue uniform. As Ranger Avery Lentz says, it is the colored troops who pay the price for Grant's mistake. They just start killing these guys wholesale. Many that try to surrender are shot or bayoneted, and even white Union officers, realizing that they also have a death sentence for leading black troops, they turn their pistols on their own soldiers to try to save themselves. And so at the crater, what you have is a racial massacre. The North Carolinian recalled his delight at bayoneting these African-American soldiers. It was an all-out slaughter. Grant writes of his regrets over the battle. The effort was a stupendous failure. It cost us about 4,000 men, and all due to inefficiency on the part of the corps commander and the incompetency of the division commander who was sent to lead the assault. It was the saddest affair I witnessed in the war. Ranger Avery Lentz says the timing of the defeat is especially bad for Grant politically. 1864 is an election year. You see Abraham Lincoln running for re-election on the Republican ticket. The Democratic nominee is George McClellan, who is running on a platform of peace. The Democrats in 1864 want to end the war as soon as possible. They are fine with letting the Confederacy go. 
Grant thinks if Lincoln does not win, the Union will collapse. The years of brutal fighting will have been for nothing. Lincoln's opponent, George McClellan, knows that many voters are willing to make this sacrifice just to be done with the war, and he's running on exactly that promise. General Petraeus again. People forget that there was not uniform support for the Union effort in the northern states. Back in 1863, in New York City, there were huge draft riots. Uh, there was a lot of unrest because it didn't seem as if the Union was prevailing. So now Lee's only hope was that Lincoln would be defeated. In a letter, Grant writes, Our peace friends, if they expect peace from separation, are much mistaken. To have peace on any terms, the South would demand the restoration of their slaves already freed. They would demand a treaty which would make the North slave hunters for the South. Christy Coleman again. So 64 is a big year. The war is now no longer just about preserving the Union. Now it's become a war for freedom. And with the election, everything's at stake. Lincoln is relying on Grant to deliver the decisive victory the Union needs to assure his re-election and to end the war. He sends this telegram to Grant on the battlefield. I received your dispatch expressing your unwillingness to break your hold where you are. Neither am I willing. Hold on with the bulldog's grip and chew and chop as much as possible. General Sheridan says, if the thing is pressed, I think that Lee will surrender. Let the thing be pressed. Grant has a brilliant strategic plan. He's going to move multiple armies simultaneously to bring about maximum pressure on the Confederacy, while also holding down Robert E. Lee's much-vaunted Army of Northern Virginia at Petersburg. Grant sees the opportunity to cut off Richmond's supply line by trapping Lee's army in Petersburg, its major transportation hub, and starving the Confederates out. He will finally catch Lee and topple the southern capital. When Grant starts to settle in at Petersburg, he sees if I put Lee into a siege, he can't move. And Robert E. Lee who cannot maneuver is a Robert E. Lee that's not nearly as dangerous. So if I pin Lee, we'll eat the rest of the Confederacy while we stand here and watch this all take place. So Grant decides to move Phil Sheridan up the Shenandoah Valley, threatening the logistical supply line of Robert E. Lee's army, threatening the breadbasket of the Confederacy that for three years had supplied the army in Northern Virginia. His next move will be to capture Atlanta. Historian Gregory Hospador. One of the key prongs of Grant's strategy for the reduction of the South is, of course, to take Atlanta. This is a no-fail mission, and you give it to the person who you've developed a level of trust and who you know is hard enough to do it, smart enough to do it, and also will do the intent of what you want them to do rather than getting off base. And Sherman is that person. If you don't topple Georgia, which was one of the top manpower-delivering states behind the Confederate war effort, and you don't topple Atlanta, which is a hub of industry for the South, then it makes it possible to sustain the Confederate war effort for a prolonged period of time. Sherman would lead the military division of Mississippi 
through Northwest Georgia, targeting the industrial heart of Georgia at Atlanta, the machine shops, the mills, uh, the factories that were keeping uh, the Confederate Army in the West going. Grant pins his hopes on Sherman taking Atlanta and taking it before the election. Finally, he gets good news. He writes, The news of Sherman's success reached the North instantaneously and set the country all aglow. This was the first great political campaign for the Republicans in their canvas of 1864. It was followed later by Sheridan's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley, and these two campaigns probably had more effect in settling the election of the following November than all the speeches, all the bonfires, and all the parading with banners and bands of music in the North. The fall of Atlanta boosts Northern morale. People now begin to see that Union victory is, while not inevitable, at least in sight. And it has an enormous impact on the election of 1864. Lincoln would win the election. What ultimately gave Lincoln that election on the battlefield was Sherman's capture of Atlanta. This was part of Grant's grand strategy for how to bring about an end to the war. Now Grant is ready to put his Virginia plan into action. In a letter to General Sheridan, Grant instructs, do all the damage to railroads and crops you can. We want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. Move quickly with the goal of destroying all in your path. Military historian Ethan Rayfuse. After Philip Sheridan destroys the Shenandoah Valley, William Tecumseh Sherman marches through Georgia. Grant famously says, the Confederacy is a hollow shell. I know it, and Sherman is about to prove it. What Sherman is doing in Georgia is sending a message to Lee's army, you guys hold out here in Richmond, you hold out here in Petersburg, but we're just tearing out the guts of the Confederacy. And meanwhile, Robert E. Lee's army is becoming malnourished. His men are living in conditions that are rife for disease. The biological decline of his men is beginning to show to Robert E. Lee in a way that he'd never seen before. They are severely worn down and they are the ones to have to defend Petersburg. Petersburg is the logistics hub, the transportation hub connected to five separate railroads that come into Petersburg that feed Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee can't lose Petersburg or he loses Richmond. By April of 1865, Grant has captured all of the important railroads at Petersburg with the exception of one, and that's the Southside Railroad. And there's a crucial intersection that commands control of the Southside Railroad. It's known as Five Forks. Grant writes to General Sheridan, Move your cavalry at as early an hour as you can. Reach the right and rear of the enemy. It is not the intention to attack the enemy in his entrenched position, but to force him out if possible. Grant urges Sheridan to strike as near to the Appomattox as he can. And so Grant will unleash Phil Sheridan to get out in front of Robert E. Lee and keep him from getting to that railroad and those supplies. It's a vicious fight. At one point, Sheridan, he's actually on horseback himself and launches himself over Confederate attackers. 
ordering the men to surrender. The Confederates will lose this battle, and they lose the South Side Railroad. And now, finally, we find Grant is able to sever those supply lines that come into Petersburg, and Robert E. Lee now has to realize we have to abandon Richmond. It's a decisive victory for the Union. Grant writes, Richmond was in the most utter confusion. The city was on fire, started by some connected with the retreating army. When it was evacuated, the Confederacy at once began to crumble and fade away. The Confederate forces now make a desperate run westward to attempt to link up with Joe Johnston's Army of Tennessee. It becomes a chase. Historian Alan Gelzo. No sooner has Lee evacuated his lines than Grant takes off after him. Any other Union general would have marched into Petersburg and marched into Richmond with bands playing and great celebrations and parties and all kinds of self-congratulatory speeches and reviews and messages sent back to Washington about how wonderful it was they had now captured Richmond. Not Grant. Grant writes... These troops were pursued by our cavalry so hotly and closely that they threw away ammunition, clothing, and almost everything to lighten their loads. Grant is managing more people than anyone else in the world at this moment. And then he gets a message from Phil Sheridan saying, I think we can capture or destroy the Confederate Army now. As the commander of all those armies, sometimes your presence is simply needed. No matter how tired he was, no matter how far away Sheridan was, Grant was going to get there. Grant heads out immediately despite his exhaustion. Heading off Lee's army rather than holding Richmond is the only way to finish the war. He writes, And now became a life-and-death struggle for Lee to get south to his provisions. We did not want to follow him. We wanted to get ahead of Lee and cut him off. The final battle between Grant's army and Robert E. Lee comes at Sailor's Creek, April 6th, 1865. Lee's army haven't eaten for five days. He's had two-thirds of his force whittled away by attacks from his rear. He is out of options. Robert E. Lee sees the men streaming from the battlefield in chaos. And Lee turns and he says to one of his staff officers, my God, has the army dissolved. Grant immediately captures 7,000 of Lee's men. Many others flee the battlefield, sensing their side has no chance. Grant writes, I knew from the great number of desertions that the men who had fought so bravely, so gallantly, and so long for the cause which they believed in and as earnestly, I take it, as our men believed in the cause for which they were fighting, had lost hope and become despondent. Historian Christy Coleman. Grant knows Lee's out of options, and he is counting on Lee to be chivalrous and end the war. To General R.E. Lee. The result of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance. I regard it as my duty to shift from myself the responsibility of any further effusion of blood by asking of you 
the surrender of that portion of the Confederate States Army known as the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee realizes that the game is over. And so he sends a message to Grant. If we could discuss matters as you had previously indicated, I would be happy to meet with you. Lee sends a letter to Grant by messenger, asking Grant to meet him at the McLean house in Appomattox. Oddly enough, Wilbur McLean's previous residence, a hundred miles away, had served as Confederate headquarters in the first battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run. History has come full circle. Robert E. Lee stands in his best uniform. Lee says, I would rather go die a thousand deaths than go do what I'm about to do. But he asked for the ceasefire to talk about terms of surrender. As they sit there in that room, it's truly a remarkable scene. You capture this whole nature of the changing character of war in that farmhouse. You have Robert E. Lee, immaculately dressed with his sash and his sword, a patrician of the Virginia Caste Society, the son of a Revolutionary War general, a single commander commanding as if he were a 16th century prince representing the last of the old wars. Meanwhile, you have Ulysses S. Grant representing the first of the new. Grant has been riding overland. His boots are mud spattered. He's the son of a tanner, a poor, humble, hard scrabble background. He sits now at the top of this meritocracy, surrounded by a very capable staff, and he has an American Indian on his staff. Eli Parker, a Brigadier General, a Seneca Indian that's gonna write out the terms of surrender. Grant describes the meeting. I had known General Lee in the old army, and I served with him in the Mexican War. He remarked that he remembered me very well, and I told him that as a matter of course, I remembered him perfectly. Our conversation grew so pleasant that I almost forgot the object of our meeting. After the conversation had run on in this style for some time, General Lee called my attention to the object. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was. I believe, one of the worst for which people ever fought. Grant and Lincoln wanted at all costs to prevent a kind of guerrilla warfare, which is why Grant gave the terms that he did to Lee at Appomattox. The surrender terms are relatively lenient. Officers can keep their sidearms. Men with horses can keep their horses so that they might go back and plant crops. This is an idea of how do we win the peace. Grant really tried to honor what Lincoln asked for. Let him up easy. Let these men go home. Just lay down your guns and just go home. Historian and author Joan Wall says, Grant's terms are more lenient than even Lincoln might have demanded. Grant actually went a little bit further than Lincoln might have wanted him to. He paroled the, the Southern Army, Lee's army, and that meant Lee himself would be free from arrest. While many object to letting those they consider traitors walk free, Grant is convinced that ending the war with dignity is the only way to ensure lasting peace. He does not allow his soldiers to celebrate or taunt the enemy. When news of the surrender of Lee's army gets back to Washington, Lincoln is so thrilled. A crowd of well-wishers comes with bands to serenade him. 
Lincoln comes out and gives them an impromptu speech. In President Lincoln's speech on April 11, 1865, he gives all credit for the Union's victory to Grant. I myself was near the front and had the high pleasure of transmitting much of the good news to you. But no part of the honor for plan or execution is mine. To General Grant, his skillful officers and brave men all belongs. It will be Lincoln's final speech. Grant stands in the front rank of great Americans of all time. He was the man who saved the Union. There's such this feeling of celebration throughout the North. The fireworks that are being set off, people in the streets celebrating, the bunting that's being put up all across Washington and New York and elsewhere, and ministers across the North begin preparing sermons to talk about the rebirth of the nation. And then, just five days after the Union victory, the unthinkable. On the night of April 14th, the Lincolns had invited the Grants to attend Ford's Theater with them. But they were instead planning to visit their children. While the Grants were en route to the train, a man on horseback galloped up, trying to thrust his head in, as if to see who was there. Always afterwards, Julia Dent Graham believed that man had been John Wilkes Booth. Indeed, Grant is also a target of Booth's plot. John Wilkes Booth. He had gathered a small band of conspirators because Booth planned not only to murder Lincoln, but to murder Vice President Andrew Johnson, Secretary of State Seward, and General Ulysses S. Grant. He planned to decapitate the entire United States government if he could do it. Grant is devastated by the news of Lincoln's assassination. Not only did he have a great admiration for the president, as well as a close personal relationship, but Grant believes that this brutal act undercuts the sense that the Civil War is at last resolved. He says, I did not know what it meant. Here was the rebellion put down in the field and starting up in the gutters. Now we had to fight it as assassination. To know Lincoln personally was to love and respect him for his great qualities of heart and head. His death was the greatest possible calamity to the country and especially to the people of the South. Grant gets back in Washington by 10 o'clock the next day and Andrew Johnson is already being sworn in as President of the United States. What a different world Ulysses Grant has returned to. He writes, The joy that I had witnessed among the people in the street and in public places in Washington had been turned to grief. The city was in reality a city of mourning. Historian Caroline Janney. Lee surrenders to Grant on April 9th, and only a week later, on Good Friday, Lincoln is assassinated. And a city that had been so full of hope and joy and messages of peace is immediately brought to mourning. And the churches that had been decorated for Easter Sunday, full of their lilies and other symbols of peace, are now draped in mourning. 
only days after coming back from Appomattox and being this great victorious general, now Grant is tasked with planning the funeral of a man who had been not only his president, but also had become a dear friend. After the war, the South is devastated. What was all of their wealth has largely been wiped out. Lincoln gets killed now. Who is going to be the one man who can provide that stable guiding hand on the nation? Lincoln had relied on Grant to preserve the Union through war. Now he must find a way to preserve it in peace. Confederates lost the Civil War, but they certainly won the War of Myth. And Grant was on the wrong side of that myth. He doesn't seek out the nomination for the presidency ever, but he doesn't turn down the nomination for the presidency either. I think we underestimate how politically savvy Grant was. That's next time on Making Grant. Making Grant is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Tarek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Grant was originally produced for television by Radical Media for the History Channel. <laughs>